Have you tried Music to Code By yet? Well, why not? Here's a comment Joe left on the website. This is also great music to mow by. I like listening to music while doing yard work to help the monotony of it seem less tedious. This past summer, I started listening to these tracks while doing yard work, and they worked great! I could let the music play in the background without focusing on it, and it seemed to help me concentrate on getting through my tasks. Thanks, Joe. And you know, now you can download the entire 13-track collection. That's over five and a half hours of music to code by for only 39 bucks. Check it out at musictocodeby.net. .NET Rocks, episode 1400, with guest Phil Hack. Recorded Friday, December 9th, 2016. Welcome back to .NET Rocks, a very special hacky episode of .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. Show 1400. There you go. Another zero, zero show. We just, why do we keep doing this? Uh, well, it turns out if you make 156 of these a year, you're going to hit a zero, zero every year. Yeah. And this year we're going to have two zero, zero shows. 1500 will be in September, right? That's right. Yeah. So, uh, and that's 1500 episodes. So I guess we should probably do something crazy for that, but who knows? Unless Google buys Microsoft and dot net becomes dot g or something i don't know that that could happen <laughs> really you've had know. that nightmare is that your nightmare okay i've had that nightmare that's yeah. a very strange nightmare what would happen anyway <laughs> <laughs> i got 1400 episodes he finally goes insane okay yep i have something really really cool to show you uh and you too phil you can chime in here if you want uh for better know a framework so roll that crazy music <laughs> All right, dude, what do you got? Have you guys seen GoMix? No. GoMix.com. The easiest way to build the app or bot of your dreams. This is another Fog Creek thing. Oh, those guys. So that's, you know, Stack Overflow, Trello, Fog Bugs, that kind of stuff. But, yep. But here's what it is. It's a way that you can take an existing complete website or bot or whatever and edit it live. What? They call it remixing. Yep, edit live. So take a JavaScript, CSS, HTML file, whatever, click on it, and then uh, launch it and pull it into another, you know, put it next to the browser so you have two floating browser windows. Yeah. And you make an edit in one, and as you're typing, it's changing live. Hmm. So the whole idea, and here's what it says, why did we make GoMix? This is in the About section. In some ways, GoMix is a throwback to an older era of software on the internet when there was simpler ways to get started making cool stuff. For people who were around at that time, they'll understand GoMix easily. We're bringing ViewSource back. Of course, they didn't literally take ViewSource out of web browsers, but the ability to just look at the code behind something and tweak it and make your own thing was essential to making the internet fun and weird and diverse <laughs> and in its early days. And, and that has sadly disappeared. So similarly, even in earlier eras, tools like HyperCard on the Mac and Visual Basic on Windows democratized software creation, letting regular individuals or casual business users create useful apps to meet their needs. During development, GoMix was even called HyperDev as a nod to this history. And its early 90s aesthetic subtlety nods to that heritage, too. Whether we look at simple issues like being able to do fun things with Amazon Echo or hugely complex issues like trying to make tech and programming more inclusive, GoMix has a role to play in solving problems that matter, and we're having fun doing it. Interesting. Isn't that cool? Yeah. 
Yeah, I remember playing with this when it was called HyperDev, but uh, I guess it's, they've rebranded it. But then they've also, I really like this focus on writing bots because that's been one of the things of, oh, I'd like to write Hubot scripts or Slackbot scripts, but you need somewhere to host that script. And here's a great yep. platform for doing that. Yeah, yeah. so Interesting. You, you just click on the create an instant bootstrap website or or make your own Slackbot or whatever, and and you start editing when you when you click that remix button it opens a little editor and everything's right there and you just start changing it i, I just love that it's cool it's very yeah, very cool that's neat coding in uh, production what could go wrong yeah <laughs> <laughs> don't get all dark on us now phil show 1400 it's a happy time yeah that's right, right. That's cool, buddy. Yep. Love it. Like I said on Bill Wagner's show, I said, what happens if I do while true, bracket, bracket, you know, curly yep. brace, curly brace? He goes, go ahead, try it. Yeah, knock <laughs> yourself out. And it, it didn't blow up, which is kind of cool. He just gave up Because we're it. not stupid, he said. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Richard, who's talking to us today? Grabbed a comment off of show 1245, so that's 155 shows ago, mm -hmm. uh, from January mm -hmm. 2016 with Mr. Hack when we talked a little bit about GitHub, and yeah. uh, of course spawned all kinds of great comments, which Phil participated in as well, it was about a year ago or so. Yep. Uh, one comment that I grabbed onto that uh, made me very happy, and I think it's a great talking point in general for all of us. Yeah, this is from Kevin Hackinson, who said, around the middle of the show, you branch, that's a digression, but branch, into a discussion around Minecraft, Our Code, and Blockly. Okay, La yeah. Yeah. Last year, my 13-year-old daughter and I used some commercial software to learn to mod, which let us mod Minecraft using either Blockly or JavaScript. We pair program through all the lessons, although I made her write all the code. <laughs> This culminated in us co-presenting at that conference, 2015, in the family track, a session entitled Learn to Mod Minecraft, a father-daughter retrospective. That's so cool. For anyone uh, interested amazing. in more details, the presentation content link are on the YouTube series and SlideShare, and I'll include the link to it. Hmm. And our friend Clark Sell, who runs that conference, and it's in August in Wisconsin, up in Wisconsin, yeah. Dallas, like really vacation land, his kids track like he has a growing cadre of speakers between like 11 and 14 so great so it's be it's really becoming a thing and clearly kevin's daughter has plugged into that as well so it's it is astonishing when I mean, you know here we are all with children uh, in varying ages and interests in software development uh, this is another element of that that's so great that's pretty cool yeah awesome stuff so kevin uh, thank you so much for your comment. I think I need to send you two .NET Rocks <laughs> one for you and one for your daughter. And so uh, get back to me with an address, and we can send that mug out to you right away. And if you'd like a mug, write a comment on the website at .netrocks.com or via any of our social media, because we publish every show to Facebook and Google+. And if you comment there and we read it on the show, we'll send you a mug. And definitely follow us on Twitter. He's at Rich Campbell. I'm at Carl Franklin. Send us a tweet. We blow up each other's Minecraft houses with them. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's bring Phil Hack on officially and officially introduce him. He works at GitHub as the director of client apps, a group that consists of the desktop, Atom, Electron, and editor tools teams. Prior to GitHub, he was a senior program manager at Microsoft, responsible for shipping ASP.NET MVC and NuGet. These projects were released under open source licenses and helped serve as examples to other teams for how to ship open source software. Boy, you can say that again. He uh, regularly writes for his blog, hacked.com, that's H-A-A-C-K-E-D, and tweets random observations on Twitter as at hacked. He also speaks at conferences here and there and has quit writing technical books forever several times now. <laughs> and has quit writing technical books forever several times now. <laughs> mm -hmm. Welcome, Phil. You're supposed to learn. <laughs> Stop <Yeah>. it. <laughs> this this last time seems to be sticking. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> this is the last last time. This is I really yeah. mean it this time. And this time I mean it. <laughs> it's like uh, every night if I you, uh, when you go to the bar with your friends and then in the morning you're like never drinking again. Never again. Yeah. This time I mean it. That's that Larry Miller. Oh, the five levels of bit. drinking. Yeah. 
That was five so levels funny. of drinking, six if you live in a trailer park, but let's just focus on the five. Oh, uh, we could go on. It's so funny. <laughs> we, we have gone on. Just yeah, it's on YouTube. Go find it. Larry Miller, the five levels of drinking. Yeah, it's brilliant. <laughs> okay. And Carl and I routinely quote the almost the entire routine to each other. That's right. Because that's what we do. The waitress with fresh stitches in her head comes over. Gives you a thick blue liquid. Usually used to clean combs. (laughs) One of your friends stands up and yells, we're driving to Florida, and passes out. (laughs) Okay. Or or maybe don't go to the YouTube video. (laughs) Yeah, maybe don't. Yeah, maybe don't. (laughs) It is hilarious. Don't need to anymore. Oh, man. Anyway, you've, you've got quite a suite of products under you these days, my friend. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. I great products. Adam and Electron are both amazing. Yeah. I think of you Phil as the guy who sort of uh made GitHub nice with Microsoft. You know? <laughs> with were not for your initiative, there wouldn't have been that integration. Is that I think I I don't want to take all the credit, but um, I certainly helped things along, I, I think, uh, just by being a friendly um, voice on both sides of that coin. Uh, yeah, right. C- certainly in terms of, uh, you know, in helping convince folks at GitHub that this is worth investing our effort and time into and that, you know, right. that there are changes afoot over there. Yeah. And hopefully, likewise, you know, in doing that, you know, helping convince, you know, Microsoft that, you know, it's that GitHub's going to be a safe place to put their open source efforts. Um, right. It's hard to know exactly because, you know, there were a lot, you know, bigger themes going around. And, uh, you know, this direction was already, you know, in motion even before I left Microsoft for GitHub. But yeah. I certainly worked hard to try to make uh, that transition easier for both sides of yeah. the coin. Well, thank you, because it yeah. works like a charm now. <laughs> We're enjoying this new world you helped build. Well, it it it's definitely um, gone beyond even what I had thought possible or hoped for back then. I mean, just the idea that uh, Microsoft would p- pretty much put all their open source software on GitHub and yeah. be building the next version of .NET and um, their next IDE or editor and you know, like as in VS Code and all yeah. this stuff mm. on. Um, GitHub, it's pretty amazing. It is amazing. So let's, so we're not here to talk about GitHub today, which is odd because that's what we usually talk about, but uh, let's talk about rewriting critical code. And uh, I, you know, I just did a blog post and we'll link to it um, called Ancient Code. And the whole thing is that, you know, all three of us have been around a long time and we started early. And so we have seen the progression of .NET from its inception to what we have today. And a lot of companies are still using legacy code, and I use, use that term loosely, just maybe code that's running ASP.NET 2.0, you know, maybe stuff that is more uh, heavily invested in reflection and things like that. Um, maybe Windows Forms applications, uh, that kind of thing. And it's very hard if you're in charge of maintaining and, you know, the care and feeding of that code to find answers on the Internet. It's almost impossible because you have to filter out everything that's been written since 2004, you know, (laughs) and that's hard to do. Not only that, but most uh, conferences you go to, you're not going to find people talking about anything with .NET 2.0. Or, you know, maybe it, what you really have to do is you have to filter out, okay, they're talking about something, does that apply to me? And you really don't always know what does and what doesn't. So I think you're just, uh, you know, it's a hard place to be. And it makes me value guys like us. It makes me think that we have more value because we have that knowledge and we've lived through that stuff. And I think probably... People like us are gainfully employed doing that kind of work. And uh, the people that that uh, are out there and hireable will either look down at you because you're you know not on the new and shiny, either that or they're constantly trying to get you to rewrite it. Um, and so, you know, it's probably a, a, 
a dearth of people who just a understand the stuff that was written back then and b can actually maintain it but now we're talking about rewriting and so i guess the first question is when do you know that it's time to rewrite oh man that's a good question um <clears throat> I think the way I look at it is when the cost of maintaining it and hiring people to work on it and, um, uh, you know, when you, when that cost is quickly approaching, um, the point where like you can see in the future that it's going to cost a lot more than it would cost to rewrite it and maintain a newly rewritten version, especially Mm. when you're having trouble hiring people to maintain it. Yeah. Um, I remember, uh, one of my early jobs was working at a Spanish language television station called Univision, um, or Univision. And, uh, we were basically taking a, proprietary Fortran system running on a mini computer and porting it to uh, old ASP.net. Um, and I think they'd, you know, finally realized that like, yeah, we really can't uh, find a lot of Fortran programmers. Oddly and, enough. Uh, mm. Oddly enough. But what was interesting about this project was that they uh, didn't want to change the UI because everybody, you know, it was a console based program. So we basically built a console based, or a console UI in the web browser hmm, that wow. uh, yeah that did exactly the same thing. So, for example, uh, for a while we would have the code running in ASP.NET and in um, the mini computer at the same time, and every keystroke would go to both so huh, that we could compare. Holy man! <laughs> yeah. So this is what, like I learned how the .NET uh, serial uh, I/O APIs back then and. Yeah. Um, and what's fun, interesting is that we actually ported, the first step was, <laughs> I had this uh, Visual Basic program. Uh, and this is all going to relate to some of the topic, like I'm not just digressing here. So I inherited a Visual Basic program from uh, the manager at the time, who was one of these folks who believed that, um, you know, there's no need to de- decompose code into functions or units. And, hey, that's what regions are for. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> It's all about the developer experience. Horrors. Right, right. So this code uh, converted the proprietary Fortran into Fortran 90, I think, which uh, then could run in Fortran.net. And uh, and so like that, all the business logic would still be in Fortran, but mm. the UI would all be in ASP.net and JavaScript. Wow. And uh, yeah, so... It was really interesting, but, it, you know, like, uh, as far as the end users were concerned, like, the way you install the app now is you double-click this URL, and then it was the, the exact same console, and, like, every single keystroke had 100% fidelity to what they would do before. Right. You know, and I, was, I always thought, like, oh, you know, wouldn't a more modern UI might actually be more efficient? Um, but, they, you know, they had all these folks. The human element is really hard to change, right? Like, yep. all these, you know, they had this huge slew of folks who are so used to this that changing both at the same time. Um, Too much. Mm. Yeah. Well, it's almost like you build a bridge by keeping that old UI, and then you could start building a new UI on the side because you've, you, you've also validated your functionality at this point. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, it would have been, you know, I left before, like, that fully... Uh, uh, completed itself but um yeah like then you you could like more easily add optimizations because you know it was a lot easier to hire asp.net developers than fortran developers sure i you know i, I do want to put on my ops hat for a moment too and say part of the expense of maintaining old software comes from the operations side too you're keeping old hardware alive like that evil mini computer <laughs> and and or you know you don't realize the overheads that come from stuff that constantly needs to be rebooted or needs to be supervised or, you know, is terrifying to update or is not updated. So it simply is a security risk because it's not being patched. Like yeah. These are cost factors to any piece of software you you operate. Yeah, that's a good point. Like, uh, you know, another uh, factor that you might consider in, in the answer to the original question would be like, well, if you're hosting all your own hardware and, and, uh, you're getting to the point where like that the cost of doing all that is just getting too much and you're ready to make a transition to the cloud like that might be a good time to also do a rewrite because yeah. mm-hmm. uh you know 
the architecture is different, and uh, you may need to rewrite the the app in a very different way. You might take advantage of um, you know some of the newer stuff out there, like in AWS or Azure or whatnot. Mm-hmm. Be be able to take it to the cloud. Be able to use modern browsers and their ca- uh, capabilities so that you've got less load on the back end. Like and have available skills, available security models, available monitoring technologies. Again, I'm going to keep putting the ops hat on there. <laughs> But the care and feeding of modern software is dramatically different. Right. Because, like, you know, we have all these code academies now and and colleges, like, churning out uh, JavaScript developers or, uh, you know, Node developers or C-sharp developers and uh, Java developers. So uh, they're not churning out Fortran and COBOL developers. Although if if you currently know COBOL, (laughs) I think you can get a pretty high-paying job because there are all these systems out there, millions of lines of code of uh, COBOL out there that need to be maintained. Yep. Uh, ADA. I worked a number of years ago with a group that were pulling together all the ADA developers that were left because I think we were talking maybe a couple of thousand. <laughs> and that was used in used in the military mostly, right? Yeah, mil- military and aircraft. Yeah. Yeah. They put them in a cryogenic chambers, you know, as backups. Yeah. <laughs> well, and, they, and one of the conversations was like there simply are no classes anymore. Like you, there's nowhere to be taught ADA. Wow. Uh, it, it's really interesting to think about as this stuff ages out. But, uh, yeah, uh, I really wanted to poke at this whole scientist library that you announced recently coming to .NET because it seems like this is a tool set for, for being able to manage updating sensitive software, changing important code. Yeah, I mean, in many respects, so the anecdote I gave about uh, the system where we built Fort- uh the serial port so that the .NET code would send the same keystrokes to the old machine and the new machine. Yeah. In a in in a way is like that that idea is sort of the same idea that scientists builds on. Uh, so the original library is a Ruby library called uh, and you can go to find it on GitHub.com/slash/GitHub/slash/scientist. And the .NET version is the same URL but appended .NET at the end, nice. of course. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> the idea is that like you know a lot of times when you're refactoring code. Uh, you might need to, um, the behavior needs to stay the same, but you're trying to um, optimize it or you're trying to send the data to a new data store. There's some f- fundamental change, but ultimately, like, the end behavior shouldn't change. Um, right. And you want a good way of knowing um, if the behavior hasn't changed. And, you know, it's uh, you can test all you want. You can, um, you know, really examine the code, but eventually... Uh, you know, if you're re-implementing something, like, it's very hard to know all the possible edge cases that you might have gotten wrong. Yeah, like, right. You know, if there were bugs in the original code, you may want to replicate those bugs. Um, yeah. So, Scientist uh, provides a way for you to um, call a uh, a new code path and the old code path and compare the results. Um, but what's nice is you can have the end user always experience the old code path, the current code path. But you always call the new code path at the same time or like, you know, in, in succession and, and you just record the results. Interesting. Uh, so a while ago, um, we were changing the way that we uh, created merge commits within GitHub. Um, merges can be, you know, a bit of an expensive operation. And so we use the scientist library to um, uh, do the merge the old way for when, you know, people... Um, like would uh, merge uh, pull requests and whatnot. And then, but in the background, we would like do the same operation kind of in a scratch, uh, you know, location. And we would compare the results of the the output of the merge. And so, um, and what we found was that like, you know, as carefully as we had implemented it, there were a lot of these edge cases that we just couldn't have anticipated. And what was nice is, you know, with the, um, like we have more than, we had more than 12 million users at the time. And, we get all this data of actual usage that would give us a high confidence that the, um, you know, once we fix all these little edge cases, we had this high confidence that our new implementation was exactly the same as the old implementation in terms of the impact on the repositories when you merge them. Uh, but it was like immensely faster. And so nice. that was a nice safe way to make a really big and impactful change uh, without, you know, messing 
messing people over because uh, you know we're dealing with their source code and and uh, people are very sensitive about us making mistakes with that. Yeah, you know, this reminds me of the sort of DevOps practice of doing building a feature offline. You know, it, we don't show it to the user, but we're actually testing it in the field the whole time, uh, mm-hmm. so that we know what its impact's going to be on pro- on production, on performance, that sort of thing. Uh, it's, uh, but this is even in some ways even cooler to do the same thing, but it's like I want to be able to rewrite these things, but I'm going to test all the edge cases by running it in production, just not in a way that the customer can see; only you can see it. Right. So we're getting, you know, real like production use cases and scenarios, right? Because like, you know, when you're writing a set of unit tests or testing it out, you're trying to think of what are the ways that a customer might break this, right? Because customers will always break it. Um, But when you when you're able to run it in production, then you um, then you're, you're getting real data about it and you can run it for as long as you need to, to get that level of confidence and uh, one of the cool things about the library is you can specify a publisher. And so we have the, uh, a publisher that publishes it to our um, uh, metrics and, and graphing infrastructure. And right. so we could produce these really cool graphs of like, you know, um, the, we could figure out like, you know, what were the differences in behavior? What were the timing differences, right? And see that the new implementation was, you know, like, you know, 20% or 50% faster than the old implementation and all these things. And so um, the library was originally implemented for Ruby and for use on GitHub.com. Right. Um, but I thought this would be a lot of fun to port over to C Sharp because I think, you know, there's probably a ton of C Sharp code out there where people might find use of this. And sure. so I started the scientist.net library. You can install it from NuGet. Uh, it's like uh, uh, it, the name, the package name in NuGet is uh, just scientist. And uh, I don't, ha- I haven't implemented any publishers myself, but um there are a few people who are contributing to the project that uh, um, they themselves are using uh, scientists in production. Nice. Already. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, and one of the cool things about uh, scientists in C Sharp is that uh, we, um, I think, yeah, I'm not a, I, I'm not super well versed in Ruby, but um, yeah. The, the threading model in Ruby can be a bit challenging. Like, there's no async await and tasks in Ruby, uh, but there are in right. um, in C Sharp. And so we made uh, we made ours by default um, run in parallel. So rather than so, if you have a control and multiple candidates, so you can have one or more candidates. Like, you know, you could have like three different implementations that you want to test out. Uh, and so what we try to do is actually uh, run them in parallel and then. Um, but the one that uh, is the control, you know, your current behavior just runs synchronously uh, so that's on the same context. And then, uh, you know, we can, you know, publish those results asynchronously so that uh, it really ideally isn't, you know, causing any kind of impact on your system um, other than, you know, like taking up some thread pool uh, thread if, if those things are long running operations. But um because you know that's one of the challenges of doing this. If if one of these, if you run them serially, like you know, then this operation that used to take one second now takes two or more sure. uh, seconds. So we we yeah, try you've to run do it, it in parallel. a way that doesn't actually impact production, right? Exactly. So we also have synchronous uh, running because you know, um, when once you start like uh, running things on thread pool threads in in a different sync context or whatnot, like who knows like what the behavior, like we have no idea what you're trying to test and, and yeah. whether that could actually cause problems. So you can, you know, we just have async versions of all the same methods so that, uh, and synchronous versions of the methods so that you can just call it the way that, you know, you know, your system, you know, your code, like call it right. the way that's going to be right. uh, safest and have the least impact and most correct for your system. Mm. And then uh, you can just uh, register a publisher and publish that data to uh, wherever you need it to go. And hopefully create really pretty graphs uh, that help you determine if, um, you know, your experiment is a success. And so we use these terms experiments, right? Like, I'm going to run an experiment with this, uh, you know, imagine you're using libgit2 versus shelling out the git to try to get the status of a repo. You could see, oh, well, which one's faster? Which one's more correct? Yeah, it makes sense. Hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. Guess what time it is now? Uh, It must be that happy time again. Yeah. It's time to pop a cold one. What? Now, where is that fridge I made from an old AS400? <laughs> <laughs> and you think I'm kidding. Mini computer jokes. Actually, uh, actually, there's a guy on my floor back in 02 or 03 
who took an old AS400, put a, a refrigerator element on the back, insulated it inside, and turned it into a little fridge. That's cool. I love it. It was horribly inefficient, but it was a fridge. Yeah. <laughs> Could have sprayed the inside with foam or something, but uh, I'm not trying to perfect an AS400 fridge. That's not what I'm doing at all. I wouldn't do that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it was fun, though. Yeah. It's actually time to give away a D-Experience subscription from Developer Express to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But first, become a UI superhero with DevExpress UI controls and libraries and deliver elegant .NET solutions that address customer needs today and leverage your existing knowledge to build next-generation touch-enabled solutions for tomorrow. Whether it's an office-inspired application or a data-centric analytics dashboard, DevExpress Universal ships with everything you'll need to build your best without limits or compromise. Learn more and download your free 30-day trial at devexpress.com slash superhero. All right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner, Richard, is Kenneth Taylor. Congratulations, Kenneth. Golf clap for you, Golf sir. Golf clap for Kenneth Taylor. And he just won the DevExpress D Experience subscription. Big pile of awesome from them. If you don't know what we're doing here, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the .NET Rocks fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world. In every show, we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December, we give away a $5,000 technology shopping spree to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. you got to sign up to win. And gee, you just missed it. <laughs> yep. A couple weeks ago. Just a few weeks ago, yeah. Uh, one Brian Wilson was our winner this year. And, uh, you know, not from the Beach Boys. Nope. Different Brian Wilson. Little did he know when he signed up and answered those questions that he would get this amazing shopping spree. But, uh, we also like to ask our guests, Phil, if you had mm-hmm. five grand to spend this time, what would you buy? Well, uh, you've asked me this question before, and I never had good answers, but now I think I know what I'd want. Um, have you seen those uh, pretty amazing 4K, uh, really large uh, curved monitors? Yeah, Richard has one. <laughs> yeah, I'd, I think I'd want one of those, and maybe a, a 4K TV, well, let's not get too great. a 4K TV with uh, Xbox One S. Oh, yes. You know. Yeah. Yes. Well, but we rebuilt also, the basement after a flood, and we put in a 4K TV with an Xbox One S, and it's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Cool. I also want a Vive or some sort of uh, a virtual reality headset. I played around with the Vive once at uh, you know, the Microsoft store, and that was pretty amazing. They Is really it, are something. Vive or Vive? Vive, Vive I think. The Vive? HTC, okay. the Vive, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Vive. I like one. Vive. The Vive. Vive. The the challenge with the Vive is they have the external lighthouses that you've had to put in your space, but as a result, yeah. its head tracking is really accurate if you do that properly, as opposed to the Oculus who doesn't have those. They do it all with accelerometers, mm. but you can fool accelerometers. If you move really slowly, mm. uh, sometimes it, it'll get confused, and you really oh. don't want to break out of the metaphor, out of the illusion, right? Like, it, yeah. it really messes with you. Yeah. Yeah. The thing about that I liked about the uh, Vive was the, uh, you know, you get those little like sticks that you hold, right? The little controllers, yep. and the force feedback on that was so nice. Like the, they had the demo bow and arrow game, and when yeah, you pull back the arrow and you feel that like friction, I was like, man, that is pretty darn cool. It is a good effect. It's really, he said, it's very immersive, right? Very effective way to sort of pull you in. Uh, to you are in this space and you get the heebie-jeebies when you're on the edge of a cliff and you get you know it's 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 amazing how much those effects work on you yeah there's a great video of some guy in a it looks like he's in a microsoft store and he's a uh, rock climbing playing a rock climbing game and he just kind of falls over and slams on the ground <laughs> <laughs> Well, they did yeah, that, so they did like, that demonstration he's, re- oh, he's reaching for a hold and he just kind of misses it and then falls and it actually falls. In, in, in real life, yeah. Uh, it's It takes a lot of computer to drive those things, though. Yeah. Like it, It's one thing to buy the, the $600 headset, but you also got to drop about five, 600 bucks on a video card. Mm. It's just, it, you need to run two 1080p 90 frame per second screens. That's what a headset is. And that takes a lot of video card. Mm. Oh, wow. Uh, I hadn't considered that. Yeah, that's going to quickly exhaust that 5k sure is yeah of spending money yep 
But what a fun thing to spend it on. Kelly was telling me oh, something yeah. of that she saw at Walmart or something, uh, these VR headsets for like 20 bucks. I have Some no- of them, they're just carriers for a phone. Is that what it is? Yeah. So you like, slip your like phone Like the Google Cardboard it. style? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's a cardboard one and there's a cloth one now that's a little nicer. Okay. But they are built to, so you stick your, your five and a half inch phone into them. Yeah, I've seen those. I didn't- uh I didn't think that's what it was. I think she was talking about something that actually supposedly does has some electronics in it, but I'll have to take a look at that. That yeah, seems a bit Yeah, and now we're in 2017, you know, uh, we were, Microsoft opened up the holographic OS yep. with the intent that the Dells and HPs of the world will make inexpensive VR headsets. So it's going to be an interesting year for, for that kind of hardware. Sure is. Yeah, yeah. I read that announcement, like they're saying like, Dell, Lenovo, HP, all those folks will be making, you know, two to $350 headsets. Yeah, and that's uh, that's an interesting price point, but it's still video card, right? The video card that's <laughs> going to get most people. You're not, you know, you may be willing to buy the headset, but most people aren't capable of replacing a video card, and buying a new machine just puts it out of reach. Yep. Yeah, that's true. I was kind of hoping that the, you know, like some of these would work with the Xbox One. Or the 1S. Yeah. But I'm not sure. I don't know. I have no idea if the 1S has enough power to, you know, power those things. Well, the PS4 does it, right? There is a PS4 VR headset. So, you know, there's every expectation that the Xbox One S should be able to do it, too. If you can drive a 4K screen, let's face it, a 4K screen is four 1080p windows. Oh, yeah. There you go. Right? So, you know, that should should do it. But... uh, Yeah. Make it happen, Microsoft. I think the problem you've got is that the holographic guys at Microsoft and the Xbox guys at Microsoft, not the same guys. <laughs> so I noticed a, a common theme in your approach here to rewriting existing code, which is, before, you know, do no harm. It's almost like the Hippocratic Oath, right? You have something that you can easily switch from one code base to another um, and piece at a time sort of... Uh, uh, whittle it out is is there ever a situation and you know i see companies do this all the time where it's not necessarily the costs and the cost analysis that they do but more like the headache analysis ah that good it, line man. that it's like you know what screw this we're we're getting rid of all this crap we're gonna write it over you know bob jennifer get on it <laughs> Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think so, right? Uh, but I, to me, like, it's just a different sort of cost. You know, it's the cost yeah. of, um, you know, hating the code that you're working on. Yeah. I mean, I imagine a lot of companies make that decision where it's not really the right decision, but it's more of a ideological. You know, like someone's like, "Hey, I'm just a huge fan of this technology, and I want to be, you know, if I'm going to be the, you know, head honcho in charge, I want to be using, I want the people I manage to use this technology. Right. It's what." it's what i care about i'm sure that decision happens all the time and uh you know a lot of times it is still related to these other decisions right like you know and the reason like i like this technology is that it's more prevalent today it's easier to hire like but you know those might not be the primary reason that this person should make that choice but it may those may well be uh ancillary benefits that they enjoy regardless by making that change but yeah, yeah, I'm sure that happens a lot of times. I mean, not to be the and, cynical one here, but you know, one of the reasons to say we should rewrite this is so to stop bothering you about deadlines for three, four months, mm. right? Like <laughs> you're under the right. gun, you have all these problems, you're struggling to ship, you know, failure over and over again. It's like, ah, oh, that's it, enough of this technology. If we rewrite this, then you'll leave me alone for for a quarter. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, it's it's almost a way to to get away from delivering, right. Yep. Yeah. And, you know, it's really tricky because uh, I think, you know, Joel Spolsky uh, wrote a really great article a long, long time ago about why you, sh- you shouldn't do rewrites, right? You shouldn't engage yeah. in rewrites. And he used the uh, Netscape as the example, right? And in a way, like, you know, for example, what are things that might cause you not to do rewrite? Well, if your current product is beset by technological issues and those are a, you know, direct result of your current um, dysfunctional company or team uh, structure, then you're just going to bring that same dysfunction to the new rewrite. Uh, So, you know, there's a lot of, you know, 
cases of saying, you know, continue to iterate on that and iterate on your team and, and on your processes or whatnot and, and get your house in order and then do the rewrite um, or hire a new team to do the rewrite and keep the old one around until then. I mean, I don't know. But uh, yeah, I don't know. It's a, it, you yeah, know, you're not going to believe this. Bit of an art. I remember that article. So I searched it. it turns out I found it. So this is uh-huh. Joel Spolsky's blog post from April 2000. <laughs> it's a 16-year-old oh blog post. And talking about, you know, Netscape screwing up by rewriting their software. You know, I wish that I could be the quality of writer that other people are quoting things I've written 16 years ago. <laughs> 16 years later. It's it's really something, right? But and, yeah. I, and, and one of the reasons I bring that up is 16 years later, there's things are different. Uh, you know, that's before the cloud, before mobile, before a lot of the current dev tools and stuff that we're using. Like, it's before .NET for crying out loud. Like, yeah. I, we're tackling this idea with scientist.net of how we literally run experiments in code during a rewrite to validate because we have that much compute and we have that much memory and we can scale that easily. And we have tooling that allows us to take a function and rewrite it fairly quickly mm-hmm. and then run them in comparison, right? Like the DevOps model is happening today for a reason. We have the resources that make it feasible and the productivity level of developers is high enough that it's worth the risk. So, I'd, I mean, I would argue against this post because it isn't 2000 anymore. Yeah. That's a good point. Yeah. I mean, imagine going, you know, to uh, an assembly programmer back in the day and saying, hey, you know, that feature that you have, we're going to implement it and run it twice and store all that, you know, in, you know, in the system. Right. And they think you're yeah. nuts, right? They're like, Because well, you are nuts. <laughs> yeah. Like, we don't have the power to do that. We don't even have the the memory to do that. But yeah. now yes. it's like memory and power is cheap. Yeah. Sure. I mean, and it, we're talking about this story is about Netscape. It was written in C++ for crying out loud. And for Are a we reason. Right in C++? That is not for the weak. Yeah. 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 And that's, that, yeah, I think uh, what, like a factor then also becomes like a, a major shift in technology, right? Like yep. if you're taking a C++ app and rewriting in C++, it's like, what are you doing with your life, right? But if you're rewriting it. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Kate Gregory. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I hope I didn't. Sorry, Sarah. But if you're Chips. rewriting it in in Rust, you know, like uh, like that might be a good case there because you realize that it is impossible at this point to secure a C or C plus plus program, right? Right. Uh, we've seen that with uh, all the vulnerabilities in OpenSSH, OpenSSL, or Open whatever. Yeah. And so, like you know, Rust provides a huge amount. It's it's still a young language, but it provides a huge amount of safety that you don't get in C and C plus plus, and that has a huge benefit. And so, you might say, well, that is a worthwhile reason, either whether it's Rust or Go or or even higher level like C sharp, Java. Um, you know, that benefit of safety becomes really valuable. And you know, with the higher level language, you get the benefit of productivity. Like it won't take you as long to uh, rewrite. Uh, another reason to rewrite might be that uh, you're ready to go cross-platform and you've got an application written for a single platform. And, uh, you know, one of the teams I'm uh, involved with is Electron. And, yep. you know, like the case for taking a WPF app that you need to run on multiple platforms and porting it over to Electron is, you know, there's a strong case there to be made, right? Yeah, and yeah. where you're like, uh, it's easy to hire you know, people who know JavaScript, HTML, CSS, and Node, and uh, you know the the leap from there to building a, an Electron app isn't very far. Um, and then you get the benefit of um, that app is easy to make run on Mac, Windows, and Linux. Yeah, yep. which is amazing when you think about it. I think um, Electron blows my mind, and and there's some great stuff being built with it too. Yeah. I had a customer recently who had uh, a SQL server database that had um, acquired a whole bunch of cruft over the years, and they wanted to sort of um, re redo it from scratch, but they only wanted the bits that were being used. So I had Mr. Campbell call them, and Richard gave him some really good advice, which is to run SQL Profiler on it. And SQL Profiler makes a log of all the, everything that gets called. 
And then just go ahead and use the app and exercise the app through everything that it possibly can do. And then take a look at the, the profile log. And now you've got a list of, of things that should port and everything else, you know, wait and see. I thought that was a brilliant move. And uh, it's just, just, it, it speaks to this whole idea of how do you know when you're writing something? You know, little do we know when we're creating things and, and putting the code down, or maybe it's designing a database or whatever, that at some point somebody's going to want to take what it does and move it somewhere or rewrite it or redo it using a different technology. And so you can't really tell the future. But are there things that you can do? And of course there are, but, you know, shall we even bother to name off some of the things that we can do when we're writing code that will make that job that much easier for whoever has to inherit the code down the line? I don't think comments work. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, I mean, I think probably goes without saying, like writing good, clean code that's easy to understand, you know, goes a long way, right? Like uh, self-documenting. Yeah, self-documenting code. Names. Um, but the, the, the profiler thing reminds me of an anecdote I heard about. Um, uh, you've got languages like Ruby, which are uh, dynamically typed and you know really powerful. You can yeah. do really powerful things with that. But um, it's really easy to make mistakes there where you you know, have a string number and you're treating it as a int number and yep. weird things happen, right? And so um, you know, a lot of folks in the dynamic lang- language space are really into things like, uh, you know, examining gradual typing or, uh, you know, kind of like TypeScript where you can kind of slowly add annotations to it. Um, but in Ruby, you could do something like uh, with a real code base, you could instrument it where you could actually look at how are these things actually being used? Like the, here's a variable and what are, you know, as we run the code in production, what are all the ways that this variable is being used? And you could almost after the fact say, you know what? that's clearly a string or that's clearly an int or that's clearly a blah and then start to like learn like oh wait here's all the places where that assumption falls down and then right. you know fix it after the fact right and so it makes me think like you know this um being able to instrument code in production in such a way that you can see how it's actually being used yeah. it um gives you powerful information about like how that code should or can change in the future like um Kind That's of the method same profiling. Principle. Yeah, profiling. The same principle with the, the SQL language. But being able to do that uh, in a way in production that isn't overly uh, costly, right? Like, doesn't slow down the, the system. Well, that's, you know, these are, you know, why do we have abstractions? They're so we can insert intercepts, right? The, the fact that we have this abstraction that is a database that executes queries means you can put an intercept on the query passing between the application and the database. That's true. And it's the beauty of the CLR approach and the, the managed memory, managed runtime model that you can intercept every single method if you want. I mean, hold on to your hats, kids. That's a lot of stuff. You know, but yeah. at least you can catch it all. An AOP library might help with that if you're talking about existing code. Mm-hmm. But, you know, and, but and there's I, also I, like outside of profiling, there's instrumentation, right? Like, you know, if an area of your product is never used, you might say, you know, what's the point of even porting that, right? Yeah. Why is it there? Yeah. Uh, you know, it, it occurs to me that you, if you have great tests around your code, this is not that big of a concern. We're, are we just presuming that people don't have good tests? Uh, we are talking about legacy code, right? <laughs> yeah. And so you're presuming the definition of legacy code is doesn't have tests? <laughs> uh, well, my definition of legacy code is any code, as soon as you've written it down it's, and it's deployed, it becomes legacy. Mm, and so, I think that's a um, little cynical. Uh, no, I mean, it means that like you're now in the process, you you're now have to, to maintain that code, right? And so, um, I, I mean, like, yeah, like legacy to me is any code that you have to maintain and uh, um, there's a cost to that, right? Now, Uh, There might, maybe I need a better word, right, for like really legacy. (laughs) Yeah. Well, in my mind, you know, operational codes is, you may have written it, you may maybe make a change to it, but and you're maintaining it. I don't think it becomes legacy until you're no longer willing to recompile. Like that to me is a real legacy app. We're not, we're afraid of it, right? I don't, I don't have a way to build it in a way that will actually work or is reliable. 
Or, or I, or, I see. I see. It's like you have a fear of changing it because yeah, it might not be a compiled language, but you you're just afraid to go there. It's like that. Uh, you know, like every old app has that. Um, you know, two thousand line stored procedure that the only monster. one person in the company knows how it works. Yes. And, and that guy got hit by a bus. <laughs> yeah. Right. And everyone's right. afraid to touch it because the last well, time we the touched, truth it, is, lost a hundred thousand dollars in one day. Yeah. Every piece of software has ugliness. They all do. The question is, do you know where yours is? <laughs> Findyourugly.com. Yeah. Do you know where your ugly is? Right? <laughs> and, and do you, you know, do you know that it's ugly? Like, look, if you're using an RM, there's an XML file around here. That's where the ugly is. <laughs> right? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Every app has ugly. Yep. You just have, it's just, a, are you honest about True. it? True. That you know where it is. It's the, and, and that's the, like, you, you, you're not going to write tests on everything because you didn't write tests on it. Let's be honest, right? So you write tests around the ugly. Yeah. Yeah. Right. That's how yep. we beat down the monster inside the app. Yeah. Well said. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, so like going back to what I said earlier about as soon as you, write code it's legacy like there's a sense of like if you're constantly improving you know code you look you've written a month ago versus a year ago versus two years ago like you'll always look back at it and say what was i thinking then like i know so much better now right i mean that's just the natural progression of improving sure and so there it, it feels Is there like there's software this- development without self-loathing really <laughs> mm. <laughs> well yeah it's like uh I, I hate six months ago me but i can't wait to see what six months ahead of me you know six <laughs> future me writes um, but, Six you know, months from it, now, I'm going to be so awesome. I'm just so mm. much better than I am today. Yeah. <laughs> in, in fact, uh, oh, I, I don't want to give. It. I was going to reference a movie, but uh, it would give away a, a key plot point. Um, right. But in any case, mm. um, about like uh, remembering things from the future. So that's all I'll say. A- anyways, like if I could remember like uh, things I've written in the future, that would be pretty awesome because then I'd be mm. that good now. But uh, the point I was trying to make was. Uh, so like that's what i mean like you know it's all degrees of legacy right like everything you've yeah. written uh as you know becomes like legacy in that regard but it's almost like the longer it's there the the lo- less it changes the yeah. um the more uh the more legacy it becomes or it hits a point where like nobody wants to change it right right, right. and some of the mitigations of that is well you know if you um follow like good coding principles right like single responsibility principle where uh something only has one reason to change um then like you know that thing can last longer in terms of not feeling like legacy right because it has one responsibility Uh, i think i conflated that with the open close principle right like following these you know good coding principles can keep those things sort of give them a longer shelf life yeah right keep them Uh, healthy Right. And one thing that, you know, I think is interesting is uh, looking at um, what I'd love to see, you know, on GitHub, for example, would be uh, seeing heat maps of code files and how often they change and where they change. Right. Uh, You can sometimes uh, there's probably ways to do this that I'm just not thinking of right now. But, you know, if a file changes often versus a file doesn't change very often, you know, that's often where you can find things where, um you know, why do we have to change this code file so often? Maybe we need to refactor it so that it doesn't need to change so often um, to keep your code sort of flexible and easy to change. I mean, that's ultimately yeah. like where I think, uh, you know, your effort needs to be is making, you know, making your code easy to change. And if it's really, really hard yeah. to change. Yeah, that's a really interesting sentiment. Yeah. And, uh, you know, like I'd really like, you know, I'd really like to see what files are constantly changing in my code or what, um, so that I could, spend more time on that saying okay you know if i ever have to port this 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 file that changes all the time is going to be a real pain like how can i restructure it so that it rarely needs to change well and you know if the code was in a github repo that'd be pretty easy to figure out which ones change more right sure <laughs> how'd yeah, you get a, yeah i mean, how'd you get a plug for github in there somewhere nice. yeah i, I could yeah. do a call back to scientists at this point too because I mean, scientists to me is really interesting to go into a project that maybe isn't well tested and be able to start implementing changes and validating them without breaking anything. Right, right. I mean, the unit test, you know, like adding a unit test to uh, legacy code is always a good way to start when you're about to refactor. But if it's something that's really critical and, you know, complex, um, the test might not be enough. You may want to use scientists to... um, 
make sure that the behavior hasn't changed in production. So use a unit test to maybe write the new version of the code hmm. and yep. then uh, use scientists to validate the new version against the old version. Mm-hmm. Yes. And uh, yeah, that would be a really good technique for doing this sort of thing. And, I, I, would, uh, I would also want to use the logs from scientists to build up better tests. Be, you know, if I could collect for a given method all of the parameter variations or all oh, of the yeah, relevant yeah. parameter variations, you could actually build up a really nice set of uh, regression tests that way. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So th- that's that's a really great point. Yeah, Because then you're looking at real data and you're like, oh, wow, yeah. I didn't ever expect anyone would you know, throw that value. Well, here's another thought then. You know, one of the things you're going to worry about is your rewriting code is you're adding additional load to the app, right? Mm-hmm. So what if you only ran it, ran the, the new version each time it's a new parameter set? So as a new pra- as a parameter set comes in, you look and go, oh, we've already run that as a test. I'm not going to run it again. Right? Oh, that's a new set. Run that one and log it. Mm-hmm. So now you sort of build up this repertoire of, you know, uniqueness, as well as minimizing the load on the production app while you're validating new code. Oh, yeah, that's interesting. I think, it, realistically, there might be challenges because the number of permutations might be so great that to store all those permutations, it's, it's going to get costly, up, yeah. But, like, if it's a very, you know, if if it's a method that takes two Booleans, that's only four cases that you really need yeah, to worry about, right? right? And so... Uh, but then again, your unit test could cover all four cases. So there's sort of this you know, yeah. middle line somewhere where um, like what you might do is like look at, well, can you categorize the sort of like the cases and the boundaries of the inputs, right? right to groupings. And then every time like, oh, you know, this 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 was a boundary value. We no longer need to do a boundary value, you know, for this parameter right. or something like that. Well, you, you get a min and a max on a given value, and it's like, as long as you're within these, don't worry about it. Mm-hmm. When you get outside of them, now worry. Yeah. You know, starting to get into uh, PEX territory. Yes, you are. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, so PEX is a, a framework for generating unit tests based on, um, it's basically like a fuzzer, right? Yeah, like, right. They analyze the code and they try to figure out all the boundary conditions, but I think they can also throw in a little bit of randomness as well. Yep, they do. And so, yeah, but you'd be doing, it's like PEX, but using live data. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but they, and they ultimately turned that into a feature of uh, Studio Enterprise 2015, right? It was the, right, uh, intelli- right. it became IntelliTest. We did exactly. a show on that's it a right. while back. IntelliTest. Oh, yeah. okay. I I remember talking to Pelly way back when it was PEX and, uh, you know, like the, before it was integrated into Visual Studio, and I never actually followed up to see <laughs> what it became. Uh, yeah. Like I didn't realize that it, it um, had a you know quote unquote proper product name. I mean, yeah, I mean, it, it, be- t- it became a thing. I don't know that many people use it, hmm. but yeah, it made it into Studio 2015. Yeah, I'll have to give that a shot. I'm kind of curious about it. Yeah, it is pretty cool. Yeah, we use it. Um, by the way, you know, if anyone's interested in learning more about uh, scientists, like you can. Uh, if you go to the GitHubEngineering.com, we have an engineering blog where we kind of go more in depth into some of the engineering challenges and, and our solutions to those uh, that right. we do on the general GitHub blog. And so we have a write-up about scientists there, and as well as a, a success case using um, the Git merge example. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's funny, I was just looking at scientist.net. You know, of course, both scientists and scientist.net are open source um, and the, uh, I was looking at the contributors here and the second contributor has the same number of commits as I do. So I need to, um, maybe go in and make a few more commits so I can pull ahead. Oh, uh... <laughs> uh, no rivalry there. No, no. Uh, <laughs> something's got to be done about that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Phil, we're just about out of time here, but I, I have the feeling we could go on and on for another hour because this is just a great topic in general. We're going to have to revisit it from time to time. I think so. Sure. Thanks for being on 1400 with us, buddy. Yeah, thank you. Uh, it's my pleasure. Glad I could get that double zero to yeah. my name. <laughs> They're special. I'm, I'm a double zero. <laughs> <laughs> You're a double A. We know that. Hacks. <laughs> <laughs> okay, enough of the bad jokes. Hey, Phil, thanks again. And listeners, we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks.
.NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a, a